Jesus said, My words are spirit and life. The words of Jesus, the spoken word of God, written on the page for us, but even now He will speak into our hearts. My words are spirit and life. And Lord, we open up the Bible because we believe this, because we absolutely accept that life is found in You. And that truth is in You. That there is no other way but You to get to the Father. But even in this journey that we travel, we recognize life is spoken into us by Your voice. And it's life that we have as Your people, in good days or bad, because Jesus, You speak life. And I'm so thankful. Obviously to me, Father, this morning, You have a word to speak. And I pray that you give us ears to hear as we often pray. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak life and spirit into us. Father, for those of us who are disciples, I pray that you will show us how to walk out our lives by the words of Christ. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 6, picking up right in verse 17. Luke 6, 17. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. We're about to hear the plain words of Christ. Some of you will get that in just a minute. He came out and he stood on a level place. These are the plain words. And I got to tell you, I spend a lot of time, probably too much time, trying to outline teachings. A time in my office looking for words that will rhyme and words that will start with the same letter and how can I, you know. And, you know, it's all about mnemonic devices, uh, ways to help people remember and think about and and even track uh, the teaching. And I don't apologize for that. It's it's what I do. But I spend time doing that and thinking it through. And and every now and then the Lord will just kind of grab hold of me and go, don't forget it is not your cleverness. It's my word that they want to hear. And it's my word that needs to be spoken. And this is what we have this morning. The plain words of Christ. From here to the end of the chapter, in Luke chapter 6, he records some of the most profound words Jesus spoke on earth. At least in terms of their historical context, their impact on humanity. And listening to these words, it almost is as though you are drawn to and among the crowds. It's almost as you can almost close your eyes and imagine yourself there. As Jesus spoke these marvelous words. This is perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon among all the things that He taught. Now, don't confuse it with the Gospel. This is not the Gospel. In fact, think of it this way. The Gospel is our declaration of dependence. Not independence, but our declaration of dependence on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This sermon here is our constitution. These are the words by which we as citizens of the coming kingdom of Christ can live. This is a messianic manifesto. And it is vital for followers of Jesus today. Before we get into it, however, there is an important trait I want to point out. This has been called the Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount. 
Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. The Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6. Why has it been called that? Because it was delivered, as verse 17 tells us, on a level place. Physically. Now some say, well, Luke's take on these words is simply the Reader's Digest version of Matthew 5, 6 and 7. It's just a shortened version. Luke wanted to make sure and get it in his gospel, but he's not focused on it like Matthew was. Therefore, it's a shortened perspective, a shortened version. But you need to contrast a few things between the two teachings. Matthew 5 through 7, Luke chapter 6, the differences are, I think, pretty obvious. One is simply geography. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Matthew says he went up and sat on the mountain. Luke says he came down and stood on a plain. And there are those who say, yeah, but around the Galilee you can go halfway up a hillside and there's a level place. Or you can come down a hillside and find a level place. And that's true. But the words seem to be very specific. Furthermore, Matthew in his teaching says that Jesus willingly healed the leper. Remember when he reached out and touched the leper? The leper said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he said, I am willing. And he touches him and he makes him clean. Well, Matthew describes that miracle happening just after Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Luke describes the exact same miracle, the same healing, before the Sermon on the Plain. So you have the Sermon on the Mount, you have the healing, and you have the Sermon on the Plain. And I believe we have two different teachings here. Matthew contains a large section, an entire expose on Hebrew law. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, I say to you. And he gets into Hebrew law far more in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke chapter 6, he leaves it out altogether. He does not address the law at all. And that may be because there's a large contingent of people here, a different crowd, a group of people from Tyre and Sidon, Gentiles. The law would have no influence on them. It doesn't have anything to do with them. It would be irrelevant, so he's not talking about it here. Whereas perhaps on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, He had a larger Jewish contingent, and so he's speaking of the words of the law and explaining some things there. So all of this personally leads me to believe this is the Sermon on the Plain. Similar in content, but given by Jesus two separate times, a second time here, perhaps a few weeks after the original teaching of Jesus on the Mount. Yeah, well, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus repeat Himself? Well, I've already given one reason. To reach different groups. I would speak one way to a group of teenagers. I would speak another way to a group of senior citizens. I would speak one way to a group of Christians. I would speak another way to a group of non-believers. It's the same Gospel. The same sermon. The same truth. The same Bible I would teach from in all situations. However, if the audience is different, the focus tends to be different. And so Jesus, I believe, is seeking to reach different groups, both with the truth. And the truth, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain is completely uh, co-functional. I mean, it works together. It, it, It blends very well. There's no contradiction whatsoever. But perhaps to reach different groups. Or perhaps to do something that I'm beginning to realize I need more and more, and that is to reinforce His teaching. Well, I've heard it, but I want to hear it again. I, I've noticed over the years that there are certain ones of you who come back second hour, taking up seats. 
you know. <laughs> and you are always welcome. But at first I thought that curious, and then I started to realize people want to glean as much as they can from the Word. And so there are those who will come back and they'll listen again because they missed a few points and they wanted to really rethink something that's being taught. And Jesus does that. He reinforces His teaching. The Word of God does that, doesn't it? Have we not seen over the years, over the decade of going through the Bible, the reinforcement of His Word again and again? He comes back to it. He may, he doesn't ever change it, but He may alter the focus of it at different places, different times. But He builds His Word into us. I had never understood the value of teaching through the Bible before we began to do it. I always highly held the Word of God. But the value of walking through verse by verse, when you start to realize God's coming right back to cover the same thing again. You're like, why are you doing that again, Lord? You didn't get it the first time, Rick. Okay, I understand. In both cases, remember this, His Word is spoken to disciples, to followers. And Peter said in his last letter, chapter 1, verse verse 12, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I'm going to tell you again. I know you know this, but you need to hear it again. And there is great value in chewing on and pouring over the Word of God again and again. So the mount or the plain, in either case, these are the plain words of Christ. Delivered on a level place physically, but note this, delivered to offer a level place spiritually. And this is, I think, something that struck me. When when Ben said, my words are spirit and life, I went, wow. What you're telling us this morning, Jesus, is that your word provides us a level place on which to stand. Your word brings us life. Not life then, life now. Your words are so vital to us in this walk. How is your walk? Is it smooth? Is it steep right now? For some it may be level. For others it may be a bit laborious. See, there's a couple of those L words, you know, that you work together. <laughs> Some may be feeling like they're going uphill, slipping on shale. Uh, others may be feeling like they're just walking in the pasture right now. The Lord's words, the words of Christ are given to us that we may stand on a level place in His Spirit. Psalm 26, verse 12, My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. You know, I found that every time I gather with you all and we fellowship and worship, it feels level. It's stable. I feel secure. There's something solid about the congregation of God's people, about gathering together as a church. This is so important. To stand on this level place. Psalm 40 verse 2. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. Jude in verse 24 said, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And I believe that this idea of Jesus making us stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, is not just for then, it is for now. That you can stand now in His presence. That you can stand now blameless 
before the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ on that level place. And that is so much of what His Word does. So if your walk is wobbly, if you're weak in the knees, if you're struggling, if your balance seems off a bit, come to the plane. Come to the plain words of Christ. Words that are level-headed, they're straightforward, they are solid, they are foundational. Verse 17, again, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of His disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Zidon. There are your Gentiles who had come to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch Him, for power was coming out from Him and healing them all. Now, before we get into the plain, simple words, there is some plain, simple power going on here. And Luke mentions this a lot. This is one of those things. There are several that we've pointed out, prayer being one of them, but and the Holy Spirit being another, but power is something Luke tends to point out quite a bit related to Christ and His followers. He does it in the book of Luke. He will do it again throughout the book of Acts. The power, the dunamis. Get used to that word. You'll hear it a lot. The dunamis in the Greek. The power, the virtue, the strength, the might of God is that dunamis. And Luke sets the scene here and again points out the power that is in Jesus, what we called on Wednesday night, the credentials of Christ. See, he came with a message, but he also had messianic credentials. There were proofs in what he was doing, things that pointed back to the Hebrew prophets that people could look at and say, he just healed a man of lameness. Isaiah said that. He just gave sight to the blind. Well, the prophets said that would happen. And so the miracles and the power flowing out of Christ were His credentials. They testified to His messianic claim. And Luke points this out several times. Chapter 4, verse 14. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 36. Amazement came upon them all. They began talking with one another, saying, What is this this message? And for with authority and power, He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Luke 5.17 The power of the Lord was for Him to perform healing. And here, Luke tells us again, power is coming from Him and healing them all. And I just pause to point this out for one reason this morning. The virtue of the power of Christ was this. He not only had the power of God in Him, but the power of God was coming out from Him. And it's an important distinction for us. Because I think there are those who... Well, who doesn't want the power of God in you? I do. I don't want to walk in my power. I would love to have God's power in me. And there's a lot of thinking and teaching in the church today about having God's power in me. But the point of the power is not that it be in me, but that it be coming out from me. That it's His power and I'm just a conduit. The power comes in and goes out. It does not stay in. The power is not for me to sit here and go, I got the power! Yeah, I got the power! It is to come out from me. Do you desire God's power in you or coming out of you? Is our desire when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts and the power of God, is our desire to bless and to heal and to encourage the sick and an impoverished world? 
See, I think that's a right attitude. I think it's a wrong attitude that says we want to sit here and just feel the power among us. And Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive dunamis, the same power Jesus had. Jesus said, you think you're impressed by these things you're seeing? You're going to see more. You're going to do more. The same power, but He says, and you shall be My witnesses. So again, the power is not about Me. The power is about the testimony. The power is about the witness. And if God should choose to use me as a conduit of His power in any of these ways, it's for His glory. And you'll note that every time there's massive healing going on, the people turn around and they glorify God. They don't even glorify Jesus. They don't yet realize He is God. But the glory goes to God the Father. If the power doesn't glorify Jesus, it's Cirque du Soleil. It's parlor tricks. It's an impressive show. But it's not God's intention. He gives us His virtue, His power for a purpose to go out from us, not to be kept in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul speaks to this. He says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I wasn't great with acronyms, Paul might say. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. And so the plain words of Christ, even the words, are power. And I believe should be received as such. Well, let's look at them. Verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. This is pure paradox. Jesus is saying things that that would catch people's attention and spin them around because they did not jive with present theology. The poor are not blessed, Jesus. And for you to say such a thing, it, it just doesn't make sense. The hungry... Are you saying, blessed are you hungry because you're about to, you know, is the peanut guy here? Are you about to provide lunch for everybody? Are we going to have a feeding of 5,000? They hadn't seen that yet. Jesus is saying, blessed are you hungry. Blessed are you weeping. Oh, yeah, what? How is that a blessing? Blessed are the hated because of me. That doesn't make sense. And Jesus' words here on the plain are far more stark than on the mount. He says things on the mount that are stunning and stirring and and life-changing. Very powerful. But He gets to the plain and some of these are just, just in your face. Like, blessed are you poor! The word poor here in the Greek means the most extreme poverty. It's the word for beggar. Blessed are the beggars. And by the way, he's not saying the poor are worthless to God. 
He's making a contrast, a comparison. He's saying in our sinful state, we're beggars. We're no better than beggars who have nothing to offer. We can only beg for whatever we have. And that's the way we are. Nothing in us can redeem us. Nothing in us can save us. No amount of good deeds or acts are going to put food on the table spiritually. Blessed are you, poor. He says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Hunger. The word hunger in the Greek means to crave after. Specifically, blessed are you who hunger after the things of God. After the Word of God, after the Spirit of God, after the work even of God. In fact, in John 4.31, the disciples were urging Jesus, we're told, saying, Rabbi, eat! Eat! The disciples have now become good Jewish mamas. Eat, Jesus, eat! Nobody wants a skinny Savior! Eat! But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I am full right now. And the disciples began to say to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Peter, did you stop in at McDonald's? What's going on? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus in the moment was so wrapped up in the work of God with the Samaritan woman and the town in Samaria that were all coming out to be saved. Food was the last thing on His mind. He was full. Of the work. Blessed are the poor and the hungry and the weeping. Oh yeah, blessed are the weeping. What do you mean, Jesus? Specifically those who are weeping over separation from God. Weeping over the distance. Weeping over the loss. Now, consider this. On the mount, Jesus didn't say blessed are the weeping. He didn't say blessed are the weeping. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. He said on the mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And they're tender words, and they're beautiful words. This is stark. Blessed are those who weep, you're going to laugh. What do you mean? What's the difference? Why does Jesus take it up a notch? There is a sudden change in intensity in His teaching here. And we need to understand that change. And I got a glimpse of it Thursday morning. And went down for the pastor's prayer meeting. And by the way, to all of you who, who served breakfast, the, the bridge served breakfast for the pastors this last Thursday, and it was really cool. And uh, so we're down there for that. And as we're standing there, kind of talking and, and eating, we're in Wallen's funeral home, right? And down the hall, you, you expect a, a quiet atmosphere. You know, you, you expect some somberness. And down the hall, I hear uproarious laughter. And my initial instinct to that was, well, that's a bit inappropriate here. <laughs> what are they laughing about down there? What's going on? And then it hit me that if you have the assurance of a citizen of heaven, you may weep now, but you will laugh. Amen. Because there is great joy. And not just joy then, but joy now. Jesus also says, Blessed are the hated, ostracized, insulted, and scorned. (laughs) And then He says, For the sake of the Son of Man. You're not blessed if you're hated because you're an idiot. (laughs) That's my paraphrase. You're not blessed because you're ostracized because you're a dork. Okay, You're blessed... When you're insulted, hated, ostracized, put out, outcast because you're a Christian. 
Because you wear the name of Christ. Because you stand for the truth. Because you love Jesus. Because He is your go-to guy. When you're outcast for that, oh, you're blessed. He says your reward is great in heaven. And that's the key. That's the key to all of this. Citizens of the kingdom may be poor, hungry, and weeping. Literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, we may be in those places. We may be hated, insulted, and scorned, but we are most blessed. For ours is the kingdom of heaven. And you can't take that away from me. You can take away everything else. You can remove all the rights that our wonderful country has offered us for 200 years. And you cannot take away the laughter and the peace and the joy of the kingdom that is in us right now. And the kingdom that is coming and that marvelous promise. Our feet can stand on a level place now because of what we know is promised then. And because of those assurances that no matter how rocky the walk may be, we can stand level before the Lord. I can scale the mountain heights of struggle. I can navigate the valley floors of sorrow as if I was walking on a level plain. And Jesus doesn't say, we'll be blessed eventually in the sweet by and by. And we will be. But what He's indicating here is that we are blessed as citizens of the kingdom right now. How do you know that, Rick? Because all these blessings are spoken in the present tense. He doesn't say, you will be blessed, those of you who are poor. You will be blessed, you hungry. You will be blessed, you you weeping. No, He says, blessed are you. You're blessed right now. In the middle of your difficulty, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the hardship, you're blessed right now. You're standing on level ground before the Lord. The effect of Christ's constitution that we will live out then in the kingdom is present and upon us right now. Of course, the woes are also present tense. And here's something that's another stark contrast. Jesus speaks woes in the Sermon on the Plain. He does not speak the same woes in the Sermon on the Mount. But here picking up in verse 24... He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. There's a principle. Do you want it now or do you want it then? Those who have it now and think that that's all that they need, okay, that's all you're going to get. And we've said before that those who seem to get away with all kinds of wickedness and evil, but have it right now, have riches and, and blessing it seems right now, recognize this is as good as it will ever get for them. This is the most they'll ever have. Don't, don't bemoan them the blessing because this is it. And those who are the opposite, maybe not having all of those blessings, maybe having hardship because simply we follow Jesus, understand this is as bad as it will ever get. It can only get better from here. He says, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. The fathers in Israel loved the false prophets, took care of the false prophets, blessed the false prophets. The true prophets they would stuff into a log and saw in half. Like Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 65 for a moment. Isaiah is toward the middle of your Bibles. 
the end of the book, chapter 65, where Isaiah gives a very similar contrast to what Jesus gives here in Luke chapter 6. All the blessings and then the woes, kind of the back and forth. Isaiah chapter 65. In verse 13. Isaiah 65, 13. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. You see? The contrast, the back and forth. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. He says, For behold, I create new things, new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad. Rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. It's feast contrasted with hunger. Joy contrasted with sorrow. And this section, by the way, in Isaiah 65, may refer to heaven and earth in the tribulation. My servants are feasting, as in at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But those who reject me, those who cast out my word, they will be suffering on earth. That's seven years of tribulation. On earth... Hunger, thirst, shame, heavy hearts. In heaven, again, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19, verse 7. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before Me in the presence of My enemies. You have anointed My head with oil. My cup overflows. David writes that not as a future thing, but as a current thing. This is what God does right here on the level plane on which we stand in this life by the words of Christ. Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will gird Himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. And by the way, verse 15 uses an interesting word. Isaiah 65.15 says, You will leave your name for a curse to My chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. The word is translated curse there. That Hebrew word does mean curse. But it also takes on a different meaning. A similar word in the Hebrew in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. The word is used many times. The word is Shabuah. Shabuah or Shabuim. In one place, a curse. In another place, it is a heptad, that is, a seven. As in a curse of seven years, as in the curse of the tribulation, your name will be a seven-year byword before my elect. You understand? And so this contrast is stunning. That in heaven, great joy, and on earth, great sorrow. In the days of tribulation. But again, Jesus is speaking, going back to Luke right now. He's speaking to His disciples now. He's leading them to a level plane. And He's saying, here and now, you can be joyful. Here and now, all of these blessings are yours. 
And if you're starting to feel a little bit sorry for those who are outside of the blessings, for those who have rejected the Lord, for those who may go into tribulation, don't forget the compassion of the Lord is for them immediately. That while He calls us to worship and rejoice, He has genuine and unceasing sorrow over those who have rebelled against Him. Over those who are not accepting Him. Over those who have or want nothing to do with Him. Verse 27. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. (laughs) Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now I understand Jesus is proclaiming love here. But give me a break. Where's the line? I mean, I only have so many coats. You know? I can only be hit on the cheek so many times. I mean, where do we stop? What's the limit of all these things? If we live out exactly what Jesus says here, where does it end? Won't people just walk all over us? Listen again. Verse 27, I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And that's the limit. The limit is love. The limit is love. The limit is goodness. The limit is blessing and the limit is prayer. What do you mean? Is it love to offer an alcoholic another drink? Is it love to offer aid to someone who refuses to take any responsibility? They're just going to take and take and take. As many times as you offer them a coat, they will take the coat. Is that love to continue to offer the coat? Is it love to embrace a lifestyle that you know condemns a person eternally? Is that love? Jesus says love. He says do good to those. He says bless them. Pray for them. And love is not the unqualified acceptance of another person's wrongdoing. That's not love. It is not love for a parent to watch their child go off the deep end and and say, Oh, well, you know, we just love little Johnny. You know, he burned down the house because of his meth lab, but we love little Johnny. And we're building him a new room on the new house. Is that love? To continue to to support that which is difficult, hard, painful, wrong, condemning? Listen, love does not perpetuate sin. It is not love to perpetuate sin. And so that's, that's where you draw the line as you're giving the coat. That's why we have a benevolence manual, by the way. We have a manual that, that we wrote up based on the scriptures that we look at and think about to keep because the tendency is it's so much easier just to write a check than it is to really care for someone. So much easier just to say, yeah, here's 50 bucks, you know, now get out of my face. <laughs> much more difficult to say, I love you too much to continue month after month to just give you support when it's not changing anything. Nothing's changing. Love calls out responsibility. Love calls out people to walk with their God. It's kind of like what what Paul said. He said, if they're not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. Well, it's not very nice. That's not very loving, Paul. No, it is loving. Because he's calling out responsibility. 
Jesus is speaking to disciples. He says, I want you to love. I want you to do good. But as we love and do good in this world, we need to recognize what is the end result of our behavior. And I think sometimes, and I think in the church, especially today, we better have a solid definition of love that is eternal and not temporary. And this is what Jesus, I believe, is explaining to us. He goes on in verse 31. He says, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And I'm so glad the higher critics of the Jesus Seminar figured out that that verse Jesus really did say. The rest of them, they don't think really came from Jesus. They're not really sure if He said... But, but that, they'll, they'll give Him credit for one... Have you heard of the Jesus Seminar out of Texas Christian University? These guys got together and began to rethink Scripture, and they rewrote it, and they highlighted in different colors what Jesus, what they don't think He could possibly have said, what they think He may have said, and then what they think, think He actually said. And what he, they think He actually said is in red. And that's it. Verse 31. That's not even in my notes. I just read that. And every time I see that, I think they're missing all the rest of the wonderful, glorious words of Jesus. Anyway, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And it sums it up. Let me ask you this. Applying what we just said, do you want to wallow in your sin or do you want to walk on the level plane? Do you want to stay in the place of despair or do you want to be lifted out of it? And that's the concept of love. Love brings us out to a better place. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after, listen, that which is good for one another and for all people. And so going back to the alcoholic reference, it may be easier to pour another drink. It may be easier to say, yeah, just I know he's got a problem, but we're just trying to keep him happy. <laughs> that may seem easier... But it is not love because it is not that which is good for another. And so love does seek the better good. My, my son Hayden, he's not an alcoholic. <laughs> but he would drink nothing but cherry Dr. Pepper if, that's all, if we gave it to him. Eating away the lining of his stomach, that ain't love, gang. He loves cherry Dr. Pepper. And so when his birthday comes, he gets one. Okay, a six-pack, but that's it. You know, for the day, drink it up, son, because tomorrow you are back to water. (laughs) Love says, I want your best. Mercy says, I want your ultimate good. Jesus takes it even further. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That's the motto of the non-believer. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good. Okay, I'll just address this. Love your enemies and do good. The church is far too often today in the name of loving our enemies, or maybe enemies is too strong a word, in the name of loving those who oppose what we stand for, are watering down the Word of God. And saying, well, rather than have conflict between us because, oh, for example, homosexuality is called out in the Scriptures, 
rather than have conflict, we'll just say that's not a big deal. We'll just let that one go. And in so doing, we condemn an entire group of people who God loves, who are precious in His sight, and who He desires to rescue from a lifestyle that will result in the worst of all possible ends. Amen. And so we see this, and, and Jesus is saying, I want you to love your enemies. And I honestly believe the best way for the church to love the homosexual community out there is to stand on the Word with grace and forgiveness and acceptance that says this is the standard, this is God's truth, this is where God's grace is found through Jesus Christ, and that grace turns us from our sin, it doesn't keep us wallowing in it. We stand on that, on this level plane. But far too many Christians right now, and this is Rick's opinion, I think it's a right one, but far too many Christians are caving in all over the place because it's just easier and we want to be loving. And I'm telling you, that's not what Jesus is saying. That is not loving. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Jesus doesn't have a problem with lending. He says, just don't worry about getting it back. That's easy. You need 100 bucks, here you go. Interest free and don't worry about paying me back. That's Jesus' way. As a matter of fact, that's God's way. What of all that He has given us have we ever been able to give Him back? You think by dropping it in the box you're giving back to God? Oh, you are so wrong. (laughs) Expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High God. Why? Because we will look like Him. We take on the appearance of the Father when we do the things that the Father does. He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. (laughs) Jesus is talking to a group of people here who are oppressed by heavy-handed Rome. And He's saying, do good. You know, lend and don't expect it. Give him your coat. The Roman soldier could come to a Jewish citizen in Israel in that day and say, I'm cold, I, I need your coat. You know, and they'd have to give it. If a Roman soldier wanted to bill it in your house, you had to give him a room. If he wanted you to carry his bag a mile. And Jesus says, if that happens, don't grumble, just go an extra one. Because he gives you another mile to talk to him about the gospel. So Jesus' approach is so radical here, and it's radical because the mercy of the Father is the same as the mercy of the Son. Jesus looked just like God. The exact representation of God's nature and being, He is God, came as God in the flesh, and He's telling you, He's telling me on this level plane, we can look like our Father if we will show mercy the way our Father does. Not the false, flimsy mercy of the world, but the mercy that comes from God that always seeks the very best, now and ultimately, for all people. Has God shown you mercy? Then consider that mercy as you look at others and in how you treat others. Verse 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. This is wisdom for the marketplace. Go into the market... And where grain is being sold, and typically the, the front of the robe, the outer robe, there would be like a flap, and you could kind of hold up the flap, and oftentimes this is how you get your grain. 
you go in the, in the cellar of grain would just pour it literally into your lap. You'd have that, that flap there and they'd pour it in there and if you would shake it up and press it down, you can fit more. And Jesus says that's how you are to be with other people and if you're that way toward others, they will be that way toward you. You're going to get a good measure in return. And this is incredibly practical. This is life now type stuff. You'll get it pressed down. You'll get it overflowing if you give in this manner. Now, if there's any single verse non-Christians commit to memory, it's verse 37. Do not judge that you not be judged. And they even memorize it in the King James Version. Judge not that ye not be judged. And I've heard it over and over and over and over when you set a Christian standard. No. When you set a biblical standard, when you speak the words of Christ, I hear non-believers say, Judge not, lest ye be judged. (laughs) And the words come back, and the church, we haven't known what to do with that. But let me ask you a question. Don't we all judge every single day? Don't we discriminate constantly? Hey, listen, I do. I discriminate between Honeycrisp and Granny Smith. Every day. No, I do. Every day. I am not a Granny Smith guy. But I love me some Honeycrisp. Fuji's good too. I've become quite the apple connoisseur. I discriminate between peaches and apricots. I love me some peaches. Love to go to the country and get me some peaches. But I do not like apricots. It's just a flavor thing. I don't like them. Mango! Mmm! Some mango from the Philippines. There is nothing like it. Papaya? No thanks. I discriminate. Does that make me a fruit bigot? Hosea 14 verse 9 says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Wisdom and discernment is judgment. It's making judgments about things. Making right judgments. Hosea says, For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but the transgressors will stumble in them. Skip down to verse 44. In Jesus' teaching, and note this, He says, For each tree is known by its own fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. By Jesus' own words here, He teaches us to judge. Judge the fruit. You should be judging the fruit of the teaching this morning. Are these things from God or are they from Rick's big mouth? Where's it coming from? Judge. Discriminate. Be discerning. Okay, so we're supposed to judge and discern between good and bad teachers. So what's verse 37 mean if he says, do not judge and you will not be judged? This is not a prohibition on judgment. Jesus is very clear, if you would walk on the level plane, you must be a discerning people. What he's saying here is don't unfairly judge based on arbitrary standards. Don't judge me. Because you don't like the Seahawks. I know none of you here are in that place. But let's say there are people in the world right now who hate the 12th man. 
They're fed up with those Seattle lights, and we're just sitting there going, we just want to win once. <laughs> Please? Well, that's just arbitrary. That's what you like. That's what you like. The fruit thing. It's arbitrary. Some of you probably love apricots. <laughs> Don't judge me. I like apricots. It's arbitrary. It's just based on a whim. It's based on human interest, on, on things that you might like versus what I might like. So how do we know what the standard is? Well, you have the standard. And the Lord says, don't judge arbitrarily. Don't go out there and just judge people. But be judgmental and wise and discerning based on not an arbitrary standard, but an absolute standard. Amen. See, I know if I go to the Word of God and it's contained here, I know that's solid. That's a, a level plane I can stand on. If I'm just making it up in my head, if it's just in our church bylaws, whatever. Men wrote those. Oh, hopefully based on Scripture. <laughs> but still, it's a man thing. And God says, I want you to judge based on the God thing. And when it comes to the man things, don't be judgmental. Get it? John 8.15, Jesus said, You judge according to the flesh. But I'm not judging anyone. He says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone. I am the Father who sent me. What are you saying, Jesus? In the flesh, Jesus showed us exactly how to judge on the standards of the Father. I can judge on that. I can make judgments on what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral, based on the Father's standards, not based on what I'm interested in or what I like or what I'm comfortable with. That doesn't matter. But the Father's standards, that matters. We have the Father's infallible Word. Psalm 19, verse 9, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Do you believe that? Amen. The judgments of the Lord are true. Righteous altogether. The reason right now our country is having a battle over America's Constitution is because some are trying to remove God's Word. And that's the only thing in our Constitution, the only thing on which our Constitution is based that gives any weight to it. You take the Bible out of our government, you remove God's Word from our Constitution, and there's nothing to support it. It will fall. It has to fall. Why? Because it becomes the arbitrary standards of some archaic group of guys 200 years ago. What do they know about today? What can they possibly know about now? Why are you guys so constitutional? We need to change things. We need to keep up with the times. And there's no standard. It's completely arbitrary. And we are tossed about like waves on the sea. But back it with the Word of God. And you have a standard that you can stand on. And you can make right judgments about things. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word, added all up, is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrows, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I can't do that. But His Word can. And so again, the plain words of Jesus are words we can live by. They are words of spirit. And life. Listen to him explain this further in parable form. Verse 39. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man. Can he? See, that's what you do when you judge arbitrarily. That's what human beings do. Well, I think this is a good direction to go. Well, I don't think so. Well, yeah, but I I do. Well, have you ever been this way before? 
No, but it looks good. Blind leading the blind. Setting up governments that are just based on what man thinks will work. And it doesn't. Because we're the blind leading the blind. He says, will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be disciples, will be like his teacher. And that's the idea. That we become more Christ-like in the lives that we live. What is it that makes, again, one human being better than another in determining how to walk? It says, you want to be like me? Learn from me. You want to be like your teacher, as a pupil is always like his teacher? Learn from me. Jesus said in Matthew 11.29, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's why I love taking people to the Gospels. Why when I'm talking to someone who has just starting to think about coming to faith in Jesus, kind of on that line, I love to say, hey, go read one of the Gospels. Because Jesus is so gentle. He speaks absolute truth. But He does it in a way that people can receive. Go to the Gospels. Listen to the Lord. Verse 41. Why do you look at that speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out that is, that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. And it is absolutely hysterical. It's one of the funniest parabolic pictures that Jesus paints. I mean, imagine it. By the way, the Greek word for speck, it means speck. And the Greek word for log means log. So imagine as Jesus is saying this, and people are hearing it for the first time, not the umpteenth time, they're hearing it the first time. That's really funny. Let me get that speck out of your eye. Can I help you with that? Because I see something there. I'm sure there's something in your eye. What? You know? And then even his language, pull that out, and then you'll be able to see. Because you can't see if you got stuff in your own eyes, if you've got your own issues that you're dealing with, you will not see clearly. And so again, he's defining judgment here. Judge by the pure Word of God. Judge by the Word that gives you vision. Don't judge by what you think you see because there may be a log in the way. You know, I read that and I think that we're far more tolerant with our own sin, our own beams than we are with the sin of others. I get a lot of... Uh, preach it, Rick. In fact, last week, I did. Second hour, when I was kind of going off and talking about the offenses, you know. And I'm offended about this. Time. We should be... You know, what's going on in the schools? You know, and, and two or three people were like, at one point, just went, preach it! <laughs> this always kind of freaks me out because I'm like, oh, whoa. I, I'm sorry, I got on my soapbox there. <laughs> I always hear that kind of thing when I'm addressing the grievous sins and offenses of the world. However, when the Word is really piercing us and addressing our issues, (laughs) things get mighty quiet. The best way to see clearly to help another sinner is to first deal with your own sin. And the only way to get that log out of your eye is to come to Jesus and confess that you know it's there and allow the surgeon to remove it with His grace. 
in Peter's second letter, after listing out several qualities of people who know and walk with Jesus, Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. And then he says, Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You know when my blindness comes? It's when I've forgotten how forgiven I am. How graced I am. How healed I am by the Lord. And I wonder if Peter, when he wrote that, was chuckling, remembering Jesus' parable of the log in the eye. The blind and the short-sighted. Well, verse 43. There is no good tree which produces bad fruit. Nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Because whatever's in the heart is coming out the mouth. And you will not be able to stop it. And what we fill up our hearts with is going to find its way out of our mouths. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5, verse 3. And this is tough talk on the... On the part of Paul, he says, Any immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And then further down in Ephesians 5, verse 19, Paul says, Speak to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Jesus, Paul, the apostles, the Word of God is clearly drawing the lines for us so that we can see clearly what is right and good and what is wrong and evil. Black and white. But we live in a world that is increasingly gray. And my fear for the church at large is the grayness and the acceptance of the haziness rather than blowing that stuff away and standing on the pure and true Word of God, which is always absolutely clear. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And as much as the devil would blur the lines today, they are clear and obvious. And honestly, we may get blurry-eyed ourselves, but you cannot gray out what is right and what is wrong. You can't make absolute things hazy. They are as straight as a level plane. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? disciples and that is the crowning word of the sermon on the plain to his disciples why do you keep calling on me you keep praising my name Jesus Jesus but you don't do what I say John 14:15 he says if you love me you'll keep my commandments 
If you love me, you're going to do what I tell you to do. And I've just told you a whole bunch here. Not me, the Lord. He's told us a lot here today. Are you going to do it? Don't call me Lord unless you're going to do what I'm telling you. If you really believe I'm your Lord, you're going to bow to my commands, to my teaching. You're going to do what I say to do. And then he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. And that's key. Then just say those who hear my words. He says those who hear and act. Those who are not only hearers, James would say, of the word, but doers of the word. He says, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. It says, but the one who has heard and has not acted is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. I saw a video on YouTube just last night of a bridge and it was just a highway uh, six to eight inches thick of asphalt. It has the, uh, the highway uh, barriers along the sides but it crossed over um, where there's a wetland and a river, a small creek kind of went underneath. had the big barrel, the big solid a steel barrel running underneath it and the water would just kind of flow through there keep the the road just fine. Well, there was a flash flood. And you can watch this video on YouTube and it's really stunning. It takes about three minutes and you see the water pushing up against the side of the road and pushing and all of a sudden there's a slight little crack in the asphalt. And it gets bigger and bigger and you say, wow, it's going to take a while at this rate. All of a sudden the whole road just goes... And you see asphalt eight inches thick on one side and water and sand and that big steel uh, tube underneath it just kind of pops up and washes away. And we walk on asphalt and we think, yeah, solid ground. I got six inches of asphalt underneath me. This is, this is going to hold me. And we don't think about the, wa- the, the dirt that's corroding underneath and how fast the foundation just breaks away and it's gone. And the Lord says that's the problem with a disciple or someone who would call themselves a disciple, and they hear my word, they're there every Sunday, whether they want to be or not. You know, they're showing up and they're hearing, but they're not doing. Guess what? Your asphalt on sand, you're going to break away. The level ground that you think you're on, it's not going to work unless you're doing the word that he says. Now, if you're doing what he's saying, you are on solid ground. Floods come. Torrents burst. Things can go from good to bad in a heartbeat in this world. But what's interesting to me is in this final parable, I would imagine that both houses on the outside look the same. You look at this one, you look at that one, they look fine. They're houses. You know? They got doors, they got windows, they got roofs, they got walls. Fine. People living in them, they look the same, but they are not the same. The foundation is completely different. The foundation of the one will hold. The foundation of the other does not. These are the plain words of Christ. And what makes them solid and what makes them stand is Christ Himself because He is the foundation. He is the plain. The sermon on the plain ultimately comes back to Jesus. It is about the plain foundation of our lives, Christ Jesus Himself. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And these are His words. Stand on the level plain. 
Stand on the words of Christ because He is our foundation and His Word is sure. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And we thank You for the reminder of of the truth of Your Word. Not just Luke chapter 6 or Matthew 5, 6 and 7, but the whole counsel of the Word of God. The blessing that we have of being able to determine and judge everything based on Your standards, Your Word, Lord. We know that Your Word is everlasting truth. We know that Your Word is a lamp to our feet. We know, Father, that Your Word is solid and secure because the words spoken, they come from Your heart. Jesus, be our foundation and teach us to stand on that foundation now and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.